This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. This episode is made possible by Rio Products. Over 20 years ago, Rio was the first fly line company to develop and sell a fly line designed specifically for spay casting, the good old wind cutter. From there, Rio developed the first commercially available Skagit line, and soon after was the first company to introduce the Mo-Tip system, specific tips powerful enough to turn over typical winter steelhead flies. Rio remains dedicated to simplifying spay with a host of videos and resources for the consumer. All found at Spay Central at www.rioproducts.com. Jeff Mischler is the man behind the camera who gets the job done. As the producer of the popular Skagit Master series, he has been a major influencer in the fly fishing industry. I met with Jeff at his home in Oregon to hear his story and to learn more about Skagit Masters behind the scenes. I'm a fifth-generation Oregonian. And that's where we are right now. Yeah, we're in Portland, Oregon. So some things have not changed. <laughs> no, it's. You know, I had a colorful career directing television commercials before I really focused on creating media for fly fishing. And every time I would fly into town uh, from some location, I would just feel really centered when the plane would come into the Portland airport. It was like, this place is amazing. I don't know why I'd want to live anywhere else. Were you fishing at an early age? Did your parents fish? So my first steelhead encounter, I was uh, eight years old fishing on the Alsea River. My grandparents had a cabin on the river, and it was a high water weekend. Um, I was just nuts about trout fishing at that point. And I had heard all these stories from my grandmother about my grandfather and his steelhead fishing adventures. 
And I don't know that my dad was uh, as interested in steelhead fishing as I was, but I would push him all the time to take me. So this one weekend we spent at my grandparents' cabin, uh, I found myself standing on the bank with a, a, an old, remember it's a black fiberglass spinning rod made by the company Quick, and the reel was a Quick 330 spinning reel with uh, 18 inches of monofilament, uh, an orange oaky drifter with a chrome number one-aught hook underneath it with a, I don't know, two-inch piece of pencil lead. And I just cast that into the run over and over and over. And finally, I hooked a steelhead. And when I did, my dad couldn't believe that I actually had a fish on. He said, ah, you're, you're probably hooked up in that brush on the other side. <laughs> and so I'm fighting this steelhead. I said, no, I have So we landed that fish. And um, that fish was really important, not just for me, but it was also important for my grandfather and my dad. And that was kind of confirmed because... My grandfather, as I brought the fish to the bank, the leader broke. It's, it's this really cheap 10-pound. I mean, I don't even know what the monofilament was made of in 1970. I have, I think, you know, who knows. But my grandfather, when the leader broke, jumped into the river off of a steep bank and cradled the fish and then threw it up on the bank. And he's a guy who couldn't swim and nearly drowned in that river a couple of weeks later trying to duplicate what I had done with my spinning rod. And so it was, you know, I was older, much older when I realized how important that fish was, not only to me, but also to him and, and my dad. And that kind of just set the stage for a, a lifetime of wandering and, and discovery uh, focused primarily on steelhead. And so that was kind of the beginning of, of my, um, my, my passion for steelhead because it was way different than fishing for trout up to that point. But along the way, there are obviously benchmarks that you, you reach. Uh, I didn't necessarily set, set the benchmarks, but through meeting uh, people who were much more experienced than I was, I just kept learning and kept learning. And, and the more I learned, the more interested I was in, in the whole process of swinging a fly and, and, and fooling a fish, basically. Mm-hmm. Basically, that's what you're doing, fooling a fish to take the fly and then in the end to hold this fish and just realize, wow, that was, that was an amazing experience. How old were you? You said I was eight, eight. That's really young. Yeah. I was barely strong enough to hold the spinning rod and make the cast and click the bail and, you know, <laughs> run the line through the drift and, you know, and reel it up and do it a hundred more times. Cause I have no idea how many times I cast before I, I actually hooked that fish. I, I could have been a hundred. It could have been 20. But at the time, the only thing I remember was the bite Mm-hmm. And I remember everything after the bite until the fish was flopping on the grass at my feet. And your grandpa was yeah, soaking almost wet. drowning yeah. trying to land it for you. Yeah. Jumped in the river, threw it up on the bank. <laughs> That's funny. So what about a high school then? Well, obviously, you remained a recreational angler mm-hmm. as you were growing up. And then yeah. did you know you wanted to be working in the fishing industry? Where did you go after high school? Well, I think like a lot of people who are crazy about fly fishing. Um, college was tough. It was really hard to concentrate. Yeah. It was really hard to concentrate and get through school. And and even today, if people ask me what I'm going to be when I grow up, I have no idea. I, I really have no idea what I'm going to be. <laughs> How old are you? 53 now. Oh, what so, do you want to be when you grow I, up? I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think my wife wishes that I knew what I was going to be when right. I grew up. But <laughs> right now, I have no idea what I'm going to be when I grow up. So fishing, <laughs> fishing kind of you know, set this path, like I said, of discovery. Um, I could apply all the curiosity that I had uh, to fishing, and I didn't really leave a lot for other things. I changed my major uh, probably five times. I started out as an engineering student at Oregon State. I thought I maybe wanted to fly fighter jets, realized that my vision wasn't as good as it could be. I then changed it to fishery science and business, and I ended up in uh, media uh, field. I got a liberal arts degree 
uh, in media production. And so when I made the connection between my interests in photography and writing and production, which is a technical, which is a technical process, um, I had a fit and I could, I didn't necessarily see what I wanted to do for the next 30 years, but I could see at least where I could apply myself in a way. And once I made that decision to follow or pursue a film career, then my life experience changed dramatically. But through high school and getting through college was really difficult because really all I wanted to do was go hunting and fishing. Yeah, because hunting's a big part of your life too. Yeah, I chase elk with a bow in the fall and I've been hunting ducks since I can remember. Um, and these are all things that are really hard to explain to people when they are, in fact, the last thing you think about before you go to bed and the first thing you think about when you wake up in the morning. I mean, it's it's one of those things that it's as natural as drinking water. It's as natural as walking. It just is who you are. And it's hard to explain that to people who you know, may not, may not grasp it or may not understand uh, what that passion is all about. Maybe that's what you want to be when you grow up Yeah, is just a human being because it it's be. natural for us to want to go hunting and fishing. Go figure. Yeah. And that, you know, culture changes so fast, particularly where we live here in Portland, Oregon, that it's kind of nice, nice to see a resurgence of uh, interest in, you know, being responsible for the food you eat. Mm -hmm. We're part of a community where people are, are thinking about where the food comes from. So we have sustainable gardens, community gardens, uh, where people are consciously thinking about small plots of land throughout the city and, and, and growing food in a sustainable manner to buy so that people can buy local. Right. And, and it's interesting. The, the younger generation, the mid twenties in Portland are really fascinated in hunting. They're really fascinated with hunting. They want to know where their food comes from. They are interested in bow hunting, shooting elk and deer. And now you wouldn't think that, that that part of society would be growing in a metropolitan area, but it's fascinating when you talk to someone who's really interested in learning how to bow hunt where, I, you know, on first glance, I had no clue that that person would be remotely interested in hunting just because of who they are and the way they present themselves. You wouldn't think that that hipster walking down the street actually wants to learn how to shoot a bow. No doubt. Story of my life. You can't judge a book by the cover. You right. never know what's in there. Right. So what happens after, I mean, you get your degree. Yes. And where do you go from there? After I graduated, I was left with this decision, what do I want to be when I grow up? Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I'm at that point it's 23 or 24 and I'm presented with some opportunities in the film community where I got to travel with who is now a very famous cinematographer, but we got to make music videos. And so I traveled around as his camera assistant, learning how to craft films while we were making music videos for bands like Jane's addiction and tears for fears. Um, Bruce Hornsby. I mean, I, so I got to travel with these film production companies or these film crews, and they're really small, tight-knit groups of people. It's a cameraman, it's a camera assistant, it's a sound guy, and maybe one uh, other assistant. Traveling to these remote locations, following a band, a rock band, which was really something for a really ignorant kid from Oregon. <laughs> I had no clue what, you know, what a rock and roll lifestyle was all about. And so when I graduated from college, that opportunity presented itself. And I I kind of ran that course until it ended. At the same time, I was working with a smaller production company in Portland marketing their product. So I was on the sales side. So while I was going off for two weeks at a time every month or so to make a music video, I was also working on the marketing side of film production. So I had a product, which was 
the product of the film company, and I was cold calling people. So I learned a little bit about how to approach people with an idea rather than just selling them a car. And so that's where I learned a little bit about how to present an idea. And that seemed to work because uh, within a year I was directing national television commercials. And so somehow I had gone from being the marketing director of this little production company to selling myself. Yeah. Well, you're pretty charismatic. (laughs) Oh. I mean, when you walk into the room, it's very clear that you're in the room and it's not even on purpose. You just have an energy about you that, that thrives. Oh, thanks. I, I'm not, I'm totally not aware of that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, most people who have that aren't even aware of it. Yeah. So I I can see that working out for you. It did for a while. We, um, it worked out for a while. I had a champion in Portland who had seen a couple of the first commercials that I directed. And then she presented those spots to a larger production company in LA who signed me immediately And within a couple of months, I was directing national television commercials. Now, I had no idea how to do this. I was absolutely flying by the seat of my pants. I was making it up as I went. I would go into what was a conference call with an entire room full of creatives from an advertising agency. I'd never been on a conference call before. I I didn't know what I was supposed to say. You know, you have the storyboard in front of you. Uh, You have to present some sort of coherent idea. You have to look at the final product and say, okay, well, given what you've presented to me, this is how I see this commercial coming together. Well, no one taught me how to do that. So I'm sure I, I put my foot in my mouth more times than, but no one's going to tell you that, right? No one's going to say, oh, you really bombed that one, kid. No, you got to figure it out. Uh, you figured it out. So the fact that I was working was telling me that I was doing something right. Um, and I did that until 2006. 2006 was the last television commercial I directed. So beginning in 1991 uh, and through 2006, I pursued a career as a commercial director. And what I found out during that process, it was 15 years of learning about people and learning about the creative process. And what I realized is that inherently I didn't believe that the world needed another Butterfinger candy bar or that the world needed another tennis shoe. I I just got to this point where, I mean, we are a consumer based society and there's so much information out there that I was having a hard time. um, I was having a hard time doing good work. Because I didn't go into each project with that enthusiasm that you need to carry into those projects to sustain your career. And, you know, I probably offended some people with my, you know, just whatever, just. Were you blunt? I was pretty blunt. And my face is really easy to read. So if I, if if I'm not happy about something and they're like, Ooh, he's not happy about that. I have the same jinx. I totally get it. Yeah. (laughs) And you can't. You can't fake your way through that. No. Because if someone says, oh, so how'd that go? And you say, oh, yeah, that went that went okay. And you're just, yeah. you know, <laughs> your expression is that was the worst possible outcome. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, you're not going to keep working in that field. So I had to make a decision. And this all leads to how fly fishing became part of uh, the process. While I was working as a commercial director, I was offered an opportunity to go to Kamchatka and be part of the first uh, fly fishing venture in Kamchatka for steelhead. And and how were you, sorry to interrupt you, but how, how did that come to be? Because you must have been a recreational fisherman. Were you at all involved in the industry at this point? So only by reputation, only, only by reputation in that I was a, an adamant and crazy passioned nuts steelheader. Got it. Okay. So in, if you think about the community of steelheaders in the Pacific Northwest in 1994 compared to the community now. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a big difference. So there may have been a dozen guys my age at that time who were working with a means to get to Russia in 1994 
who were who had dedicated their life to fishing while developing this career. So one day I was flying back from New York after finishing a, a job for Sharp Computers. It was just one of these jobs that didn't turn out the way that I that I had hoped that it turn, would turn out. And I'm checking my messages from the airplane. And so I'm on the tarmac. I punch in the code to get my answering machine at home to to respond. And at that time, my friend Guido Rar was working for oh, uh, Oregon Trout. Yeah, yeah, he was working for Oregon Trout at the time. And he said, I just got off the phone with this guy, Pete Sovereil, up in, up in Seattle. And he's looking for someone to go to Russia with him on the first steelhead fishing uh, expedition. They're going to discover a bunch of rivers and they're going to see if there's steelhead there. I, they, you need to call this guy. So I called Pete back and immediately we got along and immediately we connected. And um, so I was invited while I was working in television commercials to become part of this larger Kamchatka steelhead project that was intended to collect data that had never been collected to establish the diversity of the populations of the remaining steelhead in Kamchatka. So at that time, what was happening is the poaching was rampant. And a lot of the rivers that had been surveyed uh, years prior, I believe in the 70s, by Oksana Savaidova, who was the who, who was a scientist who was responsible for the steelhead populations in Kamchatka, those those populations had declined. And so what was proposed was that there would be an angler-funded program where sport anglers would come to Kamchatka, they would pay a fee to take part in the scientific data collection, and then that data would then go to the respective universities. A set of data would go to Moscow State University, and a set of data would go to the University of Washington. And they would do DNA analysis at the University of Washington, and they would conduct electrophoresis, a protein analysis back at Moscow State University, and then they would share the data to help create a data bank of of these fish populations and so i couldn't say no i like i no no you can't <laughs> say no you have to go yeah so i was um all of a sudden not thinking about commercials anymore and and for the next eight years i kind of stopped thinking about commercials because i was looking forward to the fall and i was fortunate <laughs> that i got to go to russia a bunch of times and work with the, the kamchatka steelhead project but but the experience the first experience was for me uh, the most amazing steelhead fishing experience because it was unlike anything i had encountered in the pacific northwest it's so hard to describe what it's like to be dropped on the tundra the nearest village is 150 miles away the helicopter flies away and the only thing there are six Russian camp staff, five other anglers, three little Arctic army tents that we're going to live in, and bears, and, and this little tiny river. <laughs> it brings you to life pretty fast, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Like the real meaning of life. Right. You have nowhere to go for two weeks, and the only thing you're there to do is fish. And the only thing you and have to survive. And survive, right. <laughs> yeah. Which actually turned out to be one of the elements we were really seriously concerned about at some point. I know. I'm serious about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, for me, that was a life-changing experience. And it probably screwed up my career goals more than anything that I could have done. Because at that time, again, I was making television commercials and I was thinking about my next project. But when you're standing on the tundra in Kamchatka looking at this vast landscape and realizing, you know, man's been doing this for a long time. And finding a way to make it work is what we do in that landscape. We just find a way to make it work. And uh, fortunately, we caught steelhead. We found steelhead. <laughs> the program survived uh, up until about 2001. But again, in the process of, of this project, there were issues that came up that made me think about my role there and made me consider whether or not um, it was something that was better left to people who lived there. And that's a whole other conversation to have about the Kamchatka Steelhead Project, because 
the fact is, this is Russia. And there are a bunch of people who are competent outfitters there. And when you bring outsiders into a place like that, there's always animosity, particularly when you're dealing with amounts of money and cultures. When those two collide, there are always issues. And acting as a camp director there, I got to uh, sit right in the middle of those issues and have some debates with the people who live there about the relevance of what we were trying to do. So in the end, did they end up winning you over with their with their thought process or their opinions? What we realized is that the people who live in Kamchatka are amazing survivalists. They've had to make it through the Soviet era being nine time zones from Moscow. So if you think about it, it's an autonomous region. They are survivalists. They, they would not be there if they didn't have the most resourceful approach to life. Everything's a resource. So when you understand that, that they are great anglers and they are great hunters, they just didn't use a fly rod. They have a way of existing in that landscape. It, it started to kind of add a perspective to what it meant to bring $1,000 fly rods from the United States over to a place where a person maybe made $24 a month on oh, a good paying job. Okay. Yep. So I think the attempt and what we did there was amazing from a scientific standpoint. We learned more about wild steelhead than we have learned, I think, in any other biological study in the Pacific Rim. Some rivers have 21 different life histories of steelhead. It's, it's critical that you have resident populations that commingle with the anadromous form. Without that, you don't have the biological diversity. So we saw all these things in this laboratory. But whether or not the angling component is something that was sustainable and actually good for the program, I'm not really the one to talk about that. I yeah. just know that my takeaway on it was that the science could be conducted with biologists and the fly fishing anglers helped catch and release a lot of steelhead to collect the data. So it was a non-lethal form. But I'm not sure the political and the cultural issues were something that would make the program sustainable. So I think someone has to kind of get over those those issues or, or get beyond those issues to make that program continue, you know, the, in a way that it benefits the local Russian population. I love your I love your transparency and your honesty. And I think that you have integrity and it really shines through. So when you come home, what's the next step for you? Returning from Kamchatka in 2000, I had come back uh, with some experiences that really kind of stood out. One, I had met Ed Ward. He came to my camp in 2000. And the, the funny thing about that was, is I was a camp director and I was the head guide. And here's Ed Ward <laughs> was, you know, working for me. I'm, you know, I knew who he was. And, and when we spent some time in the tent together, I was immediately thinking, this ought to be flip-flopped. Right. <laughs> you know, well, where do you want me to go fish, Ed? <laughs> you know, it was really it was one of those things where I realized this guy had skills that were beyond um, what anyone in camp had imagined. And, and then back in 1998, when I shot a small documentary about the Kamchatka Steelhead Project, I realized that, you know, it's very difficult to make fly fishing movies. And even though I had directed national television commercials, to make a really good fly fishing film, I realized, was a challenge. It's very difficult to make a really good fly fishing film. It's It so is. People have no idea how much work goes into that. It, Okay, so let's think about the reality here. I mean, yeah. first of all, fly fishing for steelhead is a very small market. It's a niche, right? Yes. And this, so you're going to take a small niche, and then you're going to put a two-handed rod in someone's hands, and then you're going to make a film about someone fishing with a two-handed rod. And so maybe there's 5% of that small niche is even interested in two-handed rods. Yeah. Right. So then you're going to go out and make a movie, 
or you have an idea for a movie. But before you make the movie, you got to sell the idea to people who are supposed to help you fund the movie. Yeah, because it takes money to make these things. Right. You don't. I don't think the general public understands all that goes into this. So please continue. I didn't I know, interrupt this is you. Totally keep, fine. keep going. So, so you take this idea that you have to make this great fly fishing film and present it to the manufacturers, and they're like, you know, less than two percent of our sales are related to steelhead fishing and two-handed rods, and uh, you want how much money? <laughs> right. <laughs> it doesn't compute, you know. So we talk in terms of cost per thousands, and uh, you know, when they say, "So, what's your CPM?" By the way, it took me a little while to figure out what a CPM is, and. <laughs> Uh, it's kind of like that conference call with the advertising agency. Say, ah, I'd fly by the seat of my You're opinion. sitting on Google looking it up yeah. while you're talking in the meeting. CPM, oh, <laughs> so, um, if you can't communicate that clearly, first of all, there's a flag that goes up and you might have the greatest idea in the world, but you need to speak in that language. And so when you, when you go down that path of making the, the next great fly fishing film, there's so many elements that have to fall into place. And a lot of it's luck. A lot of it has to do with relationships, and a lot of it has to do with your talents to produce. And you may have never produced a fly fishing film before, but you have to show them something that you can at least make their money worth something. So coming back from Kamchatka, I had produced this small marketing film, which was really difficult to pull together because I did it with my own money. I had the resources to do it and to get a film camera into Kamchatka at that time and to go through the process of actually making a movie in a place where, geez, we were lucky to have any power let alone charge batteries and make sure the film didn't get nuked and the x-ray machine coming back across. I mean, there were all these issues that, yeah. you know, so it was a miracle that it ever happened. But at least coming out of that, I had an idea of what I wanted to do. And this kind of leads to the Skagit Master series because really Skagit Master 1 was born in this tent where Ed and I are sitting there talking about what we were going to do after Kamchatka. What, what's the next thing? And he's talking about his casting style, constant motion, constant load, sustained anchor, and all these casting techniques that, that actually no one knew really anything about. It was five guys in Washington and BC, you know, casting these custom made lines. And, and at that moment, I'm thinking, okay, this is absolutely crazy thinking about trying to, trying to create a DVD series based on a casting principle that's as foreign as anyone can imagine. I mean, we're not talking 180 principle where, you know, what happens in the back loop happens in the front. No, this is a concept that I was not even up to speed on. I watch him cast. How does he do that? So we began concepting this, this program in 19, it was in 2000. And in 2009, we shot the show. So it took 10 years, almost 10 years of back and forth, you know, trusting each other, developing the idea, and, and, and then really just kind of throwing everything into the wind because even the sponsors, you know, they went into it with hesitance and, and we produced that show with very little money and very little support. I think we only had three sponsors. But thankfully, we had enough to actually make it because without that, the, the, the idea of presenting this casting style to a very small population is a limited idea, but that it would catch on and that we would sell tens of thousands of DVDs and that it would become the best-selling DVD in the entire fly fishing category is mind-boggling because you're still talking about 2% of the population who's interested in casting with a two-handed rod. So we got lucky in that Ed is just really good at what he does. And it all happened at the right time. Manufacturers had just produced the fly lines for the first time that would complement this casting style. So without the advent or the, the development of these commercially available Skagit lines, 
the first Gadget Master DVD would have been a, a poof. It would have just gone into vaporware because there was nothing to support it. So we got lucky in that regard. No, you really did. And the thing about Ed, people, I don't know Ed personally, but I, you know, Jerry French and I and his, oh, yeah. have you heard the Jerry French podcast? No, I haven't. I have to check that yeah, out. Yeah, you should. And anybody who's listening to this podcast with Jeff should at some point listen to the one with Jerry because it explains the guys, you know, yeah. Jerry, Scott, oh. Ed, all the, the whole crew. Yeah. And you get a real feel for how private Ed is. So for Ed to actually agree to do this with you speaks volumes to me about your relationship with him. Hmm. And it definitely would have taken a lot of time. But, you know, a lot of the people, that 2%, if you will, you know, there were so many people fishing single hand rods who wanted to get into this, mm-hmm. but they just didn't know how. And, mm-hmm. and I know a lot of those people because a lot of them are my clients and your DVD was what inspired them and educated them and gave them, you know, the know how to go out and, and purchase their two hand rod and have confidence in their cast. And that DVD really did a lot more for the industry, I think, than a lot of people realize. I have a funny story about Skagit Master and that, you know, I'm so close to it. It's hard to, it's hard to have a perspective. And, and that's, I think that's the way perspective is wherever you're standing, there's, there's the left and there's the right. And you're, you're in the middle, obviously. And you may have a radical perspective on something, but from where you're standing, you're in the middle. Yeah. Right. So my dad, who, you know, I think I tormented him as a kid to, to pursue fishing beyond, you know, his imagination. He saw the DVD and he's, you know, he written, saw it and he viewed it and he viewed it and he viewed it and he viewed it. He watched it over and over and then asked if I could help him get a two-handed rod. So I got a nice package together for him. Then he wanted to go to the Deschutes and apply his skills. And I, I don't think I know anyone who practices more than my dad. He is a practicer and I practice a lot. But when he takes on something, whether it's golf or fishing or whatever, he practices until he gets it right. And he may never get it right, but he practices what he thinks he's supposed to practice. And so my poor dad, we take him to the Deschutes on a dad's week with a couple of other buddies. And he has his new two-handed rod and he has he has a Scandi line uh, and uh, he has everything set up. It's dialed, but I'm watching him cast and he's killing himself. I mean, the fly is crushing him. He's poking himself and he's oh. he's really doing some things that if I could just get in there and say, but it's your dad, right? And he's seen the DVD. So to your point about the power of the DVD, people watch that DVD and they absorb what they can from it and then they apply that. And if someone comes and says, even my dad, hey, maybe you ought to think about keeping that right hand in front of your shoulder instead of bringing it in front of your torso and you'd keep that fly off your shoulder a little bit. He's like, but, you know, on the DVD, I saw it, you know, <laughs> like, well, I'm just saying, if you don't make a little change, you're going to kill yourself. Here. <laughs> yeah. And so um, to the power of the DVD, it really did influence even my father to do things in a manner that, you know, was was beyond what he could have imagined. And and in the end, he did figure it out. And in, and in the end, on one evening, he caught two beautiful steelhead from the Deschutes. And that was the full circle closing. He was so content having caught those two steelhead with a two-handed rod on a, you know, on a steelhead fly that I had tied after he had spent an entire season learning how to two-hand cast, cast a two-hander from Skagit Master. So, yeah. you know, it's like the, the <laughs> circle closed and, and uh, I just felt badly when he had all those hook marks in him and he was bleeding from his <laughs> ear. And it was like, oh, God, you got to change something. But he made it work. You know, I, I don't know if you know this, but I swear you and Ed went by me one day filming for Skagit. Were you guys on the Skagit? Oh, yeah. We yeah. did, actually. Do you oh, that's one of my funniest days on the Skagit River that I can remember. I, I really, you guys were in Watermasters. 
Yeah. Did you see me with all the girls? It was a whole bunch of girls. Yes. Yeah, you guys went by. And yeah. I, that's yeah. Ed Ward. Wait, what's happening over there? Yeah. Yeah. We, that is that was, so funny. Yeah, we were shooting um we we fished for nine days without hooking a fish on that <laughs> river. And you guys uh, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> we caught a couple fish. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what was that huge one that she caught? Hannah. Hannah, Hannah Belford got a gorgeous one. We're across the river from you and, oh, and you we're saw fishing. That? I'm Yo. sorry. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> It wasn't bad for me. It was kind of bad for Ed because I think that was like day seven on the river where we had. She was fishing a light, like she was fishing a service, not a service, but um, you know, a kind of subservice presentation. I think she was fishing an orange GP. Exactly. Yeah. She told me all about it when I was filming Sketch Master 3. (laughs) (laughs) So my story there is that, you know, we're trying really hard to just catch a fish at this point because we've spent a lot of days on the river and, and here comes April and all the other women. Kate and, and Hannah, Adrian, everybody. everybody. So Hannah's at the top. I mean, uh, yeah, Hannah comes into yeah. the top of the run and you can tell she's not casting a very heavy tip and she's up there in the fast water and just making these not very long casts. You just kind of, and then all of a sudden <laughs> fish on and it's not a small one. It's just it's it's a slab. Toad. Yeah. <laughs> And Ed just kind of shook his head and reeled up. Oh, <laughs> we, that's so funny. We, we walked to the bank and we're just kind of thinking, man, we got to do something different here. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, you know, it was one of those moments where, hey, it just, it can, it's fishing. It can, it's fishing. It can yeah. happen at any time. You just have to keep your fly in the water. That's right. That's she right. was behind four other anglers. She was at the top of the run behind three or four other anglers, put her fly in the right spot and a fish ate it. So, that's right. And that's how it goes. Yeah. So did you guys, how did that work in Skagit Master? Were you guys obviously trying to catch fish? So what I did with Skagit Master and the, and the most important part of the first uh, DVD in the series was to lay the foundation for the cast, but without cultural elements kind of interspersed, you kind of lose the coolness of it. If it's just Ed standing out in the grass in a park talking about casting strokes, you know, you, you lose interest pretty quickly. So what I wanted to do was infuse these elements of culture or lifestyle. So we filmed at the bunny ranch with Jerry and they tied an intruder and Ed spent some time, you know, custom cutting lines and putting loops on the back. And by the way, you guys were on the Skagit while we were filming that too. You guys were staying across the road and down the river in those cabins. Why don't you guys come over and say hi? It was we a party did. over there. We totally did. You were, you it were was, there? It was packed. There was a lot of people there. Oh, there was a lot of yeah. whiskey going on there too. There was a lot of people. So okay. we didn't really go in. And, oh, that's right. Yeah. Actually, I remember the big party night. There were so many people. It was a lot of people. Okay. So we backtracked. We said, Ed, you know, and you know, Ed, he's not like. He's not a party animal, is he? No, no. no. So we was like, oh, let's just go back to the cabin, Aww. drink our own whiskey. So, yeah. so we did. But we were filming that weekend, too. We were up filming the fly tying sequences. So when, when Ed and I talked about Skagit Master, there was a little bit of a back and forth about what would make the DVD work. And from my standpoint, we had to have cultural elements. We had to have the interaction with Jerry French. We had to have him tell stories about his relationship with the other guys who were part of the mix. And so they told stories about Scott. And they, it was very funny, the production of this. And unfortunately, I couldn't put everything in the show because there were some brilliant moments that were just so maybe off color a little bit that, that, that it wouldn't make for good family viewing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But for the most part, it was a pretty safe and tame production. Yeah. But when we infused those cultural elements, it, it seemed to break up the intense instruction from the grass casting because there's a lot going on there. So Ed and I kind of negotiated a little bit about how much of the culture would be inserted and how much of the casting because it really was about laying the groundwork for this casting style. When we came to a balance, it seemed like what we needed to do was get some on-the-river moments that weren't necessarily instructional, but they were applying the cast's 
that he hadn't even presented yet. So when it came to producing that DVD, we had to think ahead on what was going to be said on the grass casting components and then cover some B-roll segments that would address casts that he hadn't even presented yet on the grass. So for us, the way that thing came together is there was a lot of discussion about how to, you know, how to build the, the, the structure of the, of the DVD and still maintain what Ed really wanted, which was a really intense tutorial on how to break down the basic elements of the sustained anchor, constant motion, constant load casting stroke that was different than anything anyone uh, had applied in a space fishing situation. And really there wasn't anyone who understood exactly how Ed did it. So the, the challenge was to communicate it the way Ed needed it to be communicated, but then also keep it uh, interesting for the viewer and, and keep it moving along so that chapter after chapter after chapter kept kind of increasing the amount of information without becoming redundant. That's awesome. It's so cool to hear the behind the scenes with you. <laughs> so what about the backlash? Because I know the long belly guys were like, oh no, schedule lines are going to ruin the world. Was there yeah. backlash? Well, it's what's interesting about creating a forum like I did in the in the shadow or the wake of the first Gadget Master. I created a chat forum to support uh, the traffic to drive traffic to the point of sale site so that they would buy the DVD. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, right. So fortunately I'm the administrator of the forum. And so okay, there's an upside. Yeah, there's an upside to it. And I get to, you know, I'm the admin guy and I'm the guy who gets to boot all the spam, but I also get to look at some of the comments that came to the website and also that come on to the forum. And we started out with, uh, kind of the mantra was that look, it's just fishing. Let's be positive. Let's keep it positive. And anything that's negative and derogatory is just going to get booted. So after about two weeks of me booting some of the negative comments, the only traffic left were the Skagit Master fans or the people who wanted to learn about how to cast with a two-handed rod using that technique. There still today is a little bit of this, I don't know if you want to call it animosity, but everyone is very proud of what they've learned uh, in terms of their abilities on the river. And I think that what we lose focus on when we're fishing is that it is just fishing after all. And a good friend of mine who's a designer in town, he, he, he was approached by someone the other day and said, do you fly fish? And he goes, yeah. He says, oh, I, I'd really like to learn how to fly fish. And then he says, do you like to fish? He goes, well, no, I don't fish, but I really like to learn how to fly fish. And my buddy says, well, you know, fly fishing is just fishing. If you don't like to fish, why do you want to learn how to fly fish? Well, because it looks really cool. It's, it seems like it's really you know, kind of a cool thing to do. And then he says, well, it's really just fishing. So if you don't like to fish, why do you want to learn to fly fish? So my, I guess my point is, is that in the end, it really is just fishing. And the method you choose, the approach you take uh, in the water or just getting to the river is a personal thing. Yeah. And, and let's keep it personal. And let's not try to, I don't know, change the world with your... Line choice? Yeah, line choice. My big thing is is being too efficient because mm -hmm. I believe that we shouldn't be catching 10 fish a day. Mm -hmm. And so I just try to tell people, you know, when you get to that point and you're happy catching a couple of fish a day, or if you're not happy catching a couple of fish a day, maybe you should ask yourself why. Mm -hmm. And whether it be with bait, spoon, skagit lines, mm -hmm. or long belly lines, that's up to you, but I'm not going to judge you for it. Coming up, Jeff and I continue our conversation. Again, thank you to Rio for their ongoing support. Rio has a complete range of lines designed for spay casting and for switch rods. Regardless of what a consumer's skill level is or which style of spay casting is preferred, Rio has got a line for it all. Be sure to check them out at www.rioproducts.com. 
Well, let's go into Skagit Master 2. Okay. So how, I mean, unless you wanted to continue on Skagit Master 1. No, I, I had one point I wanted to make about fishing. And it related to, like, how fly fishermen perceive other fly fishermen. And this is um, my very first steelhead that I caught on a fly. I caught it on a Fenwick, eight foot six weight, with a green butt skunk that I tied, that I had to slather a half a jar of that gink floatant yeah. on it to get it to float. <laughs> and I repeatedly cast it over two summer steelhead that were sitting outside just off a little creek mouth. And they sat there and they just ignored the fly. They ignored the fly. They ignored the fly. And I harassed those fish until they left. Right. Right. So, you know, most people would say, well, what are you doing? You're harassing those fish. They aren't going to eat them. I made a cast to the end of the pool, looked down. I had a bird's nest. And I was working on the bird's nest. That's when the fish ate the fly. Ooh. I wasn't even paying attention. Right. And I landed the fish. It splashed on it. And it was, <laughs> it was a waking brick that I wasn't even paying attention to after having spent an hour pestering these two chrome steelhead. And I finally landed the fish. And so it, it, it is kind of a statement to the fact that it is just fishing after all. And it's in that moment where you just forget what you're doing and are distracted by something else that the good things happen. Right. And it's when you're so focused on what you're doing and it's when you're trying so hard that you're making yourself miserable that it's really probably never going to happen. And so I think that's my takeaway on the whole, it's personal, you should own it, but not take it so seriously. I like it. I couldn't agree with you more. So let's go into Skagit 2. Sure. Did you always know you were going to do a Skagit Master 2? If you look at the DVD covers, you'll notice that the Skagit Master 1 DVD cover is completely different than the other three. And it wasn't until Skagit Master 2 that I realized we were actually going to do a series. Because one was just going to be one. It was just going to be Skagit Master. It wasn't Volume 1. It was just Skagit Master. <laughs> so, you know, we designed a cover and we didn't really put the chapter marks in the dvd the way we should have and we were just gonna get this thing out and well then we sold i don't know how many lots yeah i mean i still see it everywhere yeah yeah i own them all yeah and it's it's, the one is still the best selling uh of all of them and you know i still i write a check to ed every year when i do the annuals and and it's not selling as well as it used to, but it's still selling very well. Because everybody has one. <laughs> I think so, yeah. That 2%. If you look at the amount of DVDs you've sold, yeah. you and I both know that's more than 2%. I think so. Yeah. So I think that a lot of people who w- may never have been our 2% became our 2% because of you guys. And my dad's a great example. It, well, that's my whole point, yeah. right? right? He okay. would have never bought one if he didn't see how cool it looked. You know, yeah. he's seen me cast and he goes, man, that's cool. They see it on the DVD and they're, wow, that's cool. That's an interesting way to do it. And then all of a sudden you want to be in the, in the cool club. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I love fishermen. I do too. <laughs> okay. So then what happens with Skagit Master 2? So I don't know if you've met Scott, if you've spent any time with Scott. No, just correspond in an email. Scott is the most intense predator on the planet. <laughs> he looks like it. So when Scott Howell decides to go steelhead fishing, you better be ready. Right, You better have your camera charged. You better have all the gear you need because you're not going back to the truck to get something when Scott's on a march. And for me, I learned so much about how to be efficient, but I also learned a lot about people and how to temper myself because it's easy to take too strong of a stance uh, in the process. And when I was working with Scott, I realized that you know he had a very clear idea what he wanted and he had never made a film before. So for him to communicate to me exactly what he wanted required a lot of talking. And so when I make these shows, I I basically live with these guys. We, we spend a lot of time together and, um, 
it's always a negotiation process because there's what's possible with a camera and there's poss- what's possible with the money you have. But then there's also the possibilities in the brain of the person who wants to, you know, create this, this, uh, this, this, this show. Scott has so much experience and is really one of the most tenacious steelheaders I have ever met. I, we were up an hour and a half before daylight. We did not get back to the hotel until two hours after dark. Ew, and this was ew. every day. Now, this is in the summer. So, no. Yeah. I've heard this about him. Yeah, it's intense. He did realize, though, that when the water temperatures would go up on the Umqua, for example, that it was time to stop. I mean, it, we could only fish it so long, and then it wasn't a good idea just because the water got too warm. Right. But when we're in B.C. chasing steelhead in places that... Cannot be mentioned. Cannot be mentioned, <laughs> but were absolutely amazing. Um, I... I, I realize that, you know, that whole, you got to keep your fly in the water. It, it's never more apparent when you have a guy who's fishing like every hour of the day, because if there was an opportunity to hook a fish or get a bite, he had his fly in the water. Right. There was not an opportunity to lounge on the bank. And one one of my funny stories about the whole process was that I was spent from spending maybe a week and a half in BC following him every day to a new spot to a different river. And on the one day when we had rain and the conditions were great, I, mean, I was really tired. I was, and I thought, well, we've covered basically everything except him catching a bunch of fish. And so I guess what I'll do is I'll wait till he hooks a fish and see if it's going to be any good. And so within two minutes, he has a fish on it. And he's like, what are you doing in the boat? Get your camera. He's like, I thought you were, you know, I know. Yeah. Okay. I, okay. I'm ready now. I'm not going to sit in the boat anymore. I'm going to be there. And he proceeded to catch five or six fish that day in about a two hour period when it was spot on. He didn't miss one. It was wherever there was a fish, that fish ate. And which told me a lot about steelhead in general. And I think there's a lot of myths that can be dispelled when you're making a fly fishing film. One of the things that I learned in making these films is that, you know, the myth about um, that only certain steelhead in the pod will take a fly or that only a certain percentage of the salmon will eat. There were either freaking thousands of steelhead in the river or he caught everyone that would bite. Because if you have a lot of fish and only 10% of them eat, he caught one in every pool. That means the pool was full of fish, right? Or every fish in the pool, nearly every fish in the pool, ate the first time the fly went by. So what I'm realizing in making these films is that really they're predators. Steelhead are predators. Chinook salmon are predators. Uh, I'm not so certain about coho. But when that fly comes across their wheelhouse or into their wheelhouse the first time, that's your opportunity to catch that fish. And so one of the things about working with Scott that I realized was that, you know, part of his predatory nature is that he's figured out that that balance of water clarity and how quickly he moves to the run. And if the water's really clear, that guy's moving six to eight feet between casts because the fish can see that far. And what you don't want to do, and what seems apparent by the number of fish the guy caught, was that if the fish can see the fly, that next cast ought to be right in front of that fish's nose because you don't want to lull that fish to sleep. And the analogy that I make is that if you have a bunch of fish in a fish tank or maybe a deep pool in a river somewhere and you throw the nickel out and you watch the nickel float to the bottom, all the fish are interested. The next time you throw the nickel out, maybe one of them's interested. The third time you flip that nickel out, they all just watch the nickel go to the bottom and they don't respond. So if you think about a fly approaching the lie of a steelhead, first time he sees it, he's pretty peaked, but maybe he can't get it because it's just outside of his zone. The next cast ought to be right in his wheelhouse because then he's going to, that's his opportunity to take it. And it all happens 
when you space out your rate of travel or you determine your rate of travel down the run with the clarity of the water. So conversely, if it's really murky and there's only 18 inches or two feet, you know, you don't want to move through the run very quickly because the fish may not have seen it on the previous swing. And the next one is right in his face and you might get him to grab, but you also might have gone behind his head. So those are the things that I learned watching these really good anglers on each of these DVDs fish in that they bring a lifetime of experience to the production. And I get to learn more and, and answer so many questions that I have while while I'm making you know, the, the movie that they've always dreamed of making. So it's you know, yeah. it's a win-win for, for both of us. Yeah, it, sound, it sounds like it. I learned a lot about steelhead fishing from Scott. And he uses great analogies. Like, for example, the Umpqua is a river where there are certain holding lies that are the, the best holding water in the whole river. But it's eight feet deep, right? And Scott's... Uh, Scott's uh, comment is that, well, why would you stay in a Motel 6 when you can stay at the Ritz? You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's a pretty funny guy, isn't oh, he? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I get a kick out of him. Yeah. Okay, so you do Skagit Master 2. What was yeah. your, what were you looking to really educate people on in Skagit Master 2? When we had finished Skagit Master 1, I, I thought we'd covered all the bases with the casting technique. Um, I'm sure that, you know, when Ed looks back at, at Skagit Master 1, there are some things he'd like to do differently. But we were just figuring it out as we went. With Skagit Master 2, what I wanted to do was take that foundation that we had built with Skagit Master 1 and then present the concept of presentation in many different scenarios. So, you know, we had low water scenarios. We had surface scenarios. We had uh, uh, heavy sink tip, uh, light sink tip. Well, those are all presentation techniques that require a completely different approach. If you're fishing a really heavy sink tip with a very heavy fly, you're going to set the fly up differently in the run than you are if you're fishing a floater. And so that range of possibilities that was presented now that you've shown people how to cast a Skagit line needed to be addressed. And when I'd finished Skagit Master 1, Scott approached me and said, hey, I've got this idea and we need to develop it, but I think it's uh, I think it's time for a film that did what Lanny Waller's film did back when we were learning. I agreed with him that it was something that would cover new territory and not repeat what Lanny had done because, you know, that was the classic. That was the one that got me really thinking about Summer Steelhead and BC. But what we tried to do with Skagit Master 2 was to take the equipment, mostly the new lines, but also the rods, and apply effective techniques using the new equipment. And that hadn't been addressed yet. I'll attest to that. Skagit Master 3. So, so, I mean, did you did you get to a point where you're sitting back being like, what else yeah. can we do? Well, it was it was really apparent that you, we needed to cover the cast, we needed to cover presentation, and it was apparent that we needed to cover fly design. And when we got to Skagit Master 3, that was the hardest one to pull together because steelheaders really are proud of their flies, right? They're really proud of them. And and there may be a slight change that was added to a traditional pattern, but then they own that fly, right? That's their names on it. We've got signature tires all over so the place. So stupid, but okay, continue. <laughs> so, so when I brought this up, I had to decide, was I going to go back and represent flies that had been tied and presented a hundred times in every YouTube video you can imagine? Or was I going to kind of go outside the box and ask fly tires to to think about um, something that would be kind of more groundbreaking, or was I going to find fly tires who do things different than everyone else does? And when I made that choice, I kind of upset some of the the icons of the fly tying world because they're the signature tires, right? And I didn't really have any signature tires in Skagit Master 3. The challenge with flies, 
is that. You know, a steelhead will eat a dog turd on a rope if it wants to, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah. So really, it's just, I'm, I mean, I, I have flies that I'm repurposing here. I have flies I'll never fish, and I'm cutting the eyes out of them right here at my, at yeah. my desk. Because People can't see. We're literally, we're yeah. sitting at your fly tying desk right now. And it's a mess. There's so a lot yeah. of green, by the way. I see you, you yeah. use a lot of green. Yeah, it's Chinook fishing right now. So oh, I'm going okay. through all my Chinook flies and tearing them apart, and, and I'm basically salvaging the eyes because that's yeah. the expensive part. And then, I like it. Yeah, and the hooks, you know, I'm, I'm always using a new hook, so I may never use those hooks again. But when you when you, when you you begin to address steelhead flies particularly oh my gosh there's a range of people who are all about the classics i mean there are people who would not cast anything less than a 75 foot head and a and a, is it glasgow is it no it's a glasso yes yeah, glasso, glasso fly, fly yeah. uh at the end of some gut i don't know i that doesn't make sense to me but that's one end of the spectrum the other end of the spectrum uh is a guy like ed who'll take a piece of bunny strip and a and a freaking piece of uh, a split shot and and knock it out there and catch more fish than you know Everyone else on the river. Yeah. So there's a range. It's personal. It, it's personal, right? Totally. But when you try to embark on a DVD that presents fly tying concepts, and you'd like to include some of these people who are known for their fly tying skills, it, it becomes a battle of will. Because, yeah, it's pretty important that that little piece of ostrich is right there, but it's really not that important. I'm talking about broader concepts. It's important to you as a fly tire, but <laughs> right. it's not important to the fish. They could care less. No. So that was the challenging one because what I wanted to achieve with Skagit Master 3 was uh, new approaches to fly design. And when my friend Ed Hepp uh, showed me one of his flies, he has a, a fly that he ties with Angora and it's wound onto a piece of wire and the wire then is wound onto the shank and it creates this full full uh, silhouette but it's completely translucent and it looks like colored water when it's moving through the water there's no it's it's almost as though um it's just this halo this colored halo moving through the water which was n like nothing i'd ever seen before and when i put it in the tank i was man that's fascinating it was like he was thinking about living free swimming creatures in the ocean and how the world either reflected back onto itself or the fish would see through the the prey and his flies, when you put them in a tank or in a, you know, in a, in a river and you shoot them from beneath, you can see through the fly and the movement is insane. And it just presents the, the image of something that's living. And it's the image, uh, the impression of something that's trying to get away. So those two things make his fly absolutely wickedly effective. And he is, as a designer, designed a way to put weight into the fly without adding barbells, a way to rig the hook so it runs up. His fly doesn't hang up on the bottom of the river. You don't lose them. He'll wear the bottom material off the fly before he'll lose them. So I thought that was a fascinating approach to fly design. And so when I saw his fly, I actually began to get the idea for doing a larger film on flies. And so Skagit Master 3 was more of a product of seeing a really cool, unique fly design and then thinking, okay, what are the other possibilities? So, so Skagit yes, Master 3 is all fly tying. Yes. My goal with Skagit Master 3 was to create the idea or the impression of a ball of culture. And that so much of the culture of fly fishing is around the table when you're tying flies. I mean, you experience so much from people in the process of creating a, another steelhead fly. And that's kind of what I wanted the takeaway to be is that I, I wanted the viewer to spend a little bit of time with each one of these tires get a little bit of their personal story, get connected with them in a way that, that you wouldn't if you just read a magazine article about them, that you got to know the personality well enough to understand why they designed the fly or tied the fly the way they did. Hopefully I succeeded you know, in that endeavor. How did sales do with number three? 
It's been good. It hasn't been as good, obviously, as the first two. There are still people who have not seen Skagit Master 1 or 2 who choose to buy the fly-tying DVD because there are a lot of people who don't like to be told how to cast. There are a lot of people who don't like to be shown how to make a presentation. There are also a lot of people who are very competent, and, you know, they're not going to spend the 39 bucks on a how-to-improve-your-presentation DVD, but they might when it when you have an opportunity to learn how to tie five new steelhead flies. And had you not seen Skagit Master 1 or 2, the flies that Ed and, and uh, Scott presented, that was the first time you would have seen them. So the only blowback I got on Skagit Master 3 from people who had seen the first two was that, hey, I already saw those first two flies in the first two DVDs. And I said, but what about the person who did not buy those first two DVDs who is just the fly tire? Those people have never seen those flies before. So my choice was to go with many more tires or tease the other two DVDs with a couple of flies from the other shows that may pique their interest to go buy the other shows. And so I can't tell you what worked, but I do know that the sales from Skagit Master 3 were really good upon release, but over time, Skagit Master 1 is still number one, and Scott's is the second bestseller. Yeah, I can see that. Where do people go when they want to buy the CVD? We sell Skagit Master directly at SkagitMaster.com. We've always had a point-of-sale site. I've been distributing to Angler's Book Supply for a number of years, and they're now redistributing to fly shops. So if your fly shop doesn't have a Skagit Master DVD, you can ask the fly shop owner to carry it, and then they order directly from Angler's Book Supply. So I do have that as my international uh, distributor. There are some fly shops who will buy directly from Skagit Master because I've set up a wholesale link where they just go to the site, click on the fly shops buy here, Mm -hmm. and it takes you to a wholesale section where you can buy it 40% off, and then I have a free shipping option for fly shops in the United States. Oh, this is awesome. Okay, talk to me about number four, because this one intrigues me. So, me too. And it's genius, by the way. I thought it was such a good idea, because... Well, I'll let you start by explaining what number four is, and we'll go from there. Well, so one of the challenges in creating fly fishing films is this concept of inspiration and aspiration, right? So fly fishermen in the Midwest, those that come out to the West Coast, they get a taste of what it's like out here. But for the fly fishermen in the Midwest who don't come out here, we're in this world out here that's kind of like, oh, that's where, you know, that's the Pacific Northwest, and that's where fish are real, and that's where the steelhead, but they're really proud of their steelhead in the Great Lakes. Darn straight. They are absolutely 100% proud of those fish, and I have to say, having now hooked a few of those fish, they bite like trout, big trout, they eat the fly, and they may be big lake run steelhead or whatever you want to call them, but those things... They eat the fly. So there's absolutely no doubt that that fish has the fly. Whereas over here on the coast, if you have a stale steelhead that's been in the river for a while, he might come up and just blink, you know, just give you a little indication that he's there. I never experienced that in the Midwest. It was just, he's either there or he's not. So they have a good reason to be pretty proud of those fish. You guys were in Michigan? Yeah. The Michigan fish are... are we were there the, when you were there. Yeah. I know. What is this? I was with there the same this? week you were there. We're, I know. I remember that. We were going to try to meet up. Yeah, that's right. That's I was right. so tired. Yeah. Because I was on the Muskegon and did, were you guys on the well, same... Well, we'd seen You guys him. were in a hotel off the river, right? Yes. That's why. Yeah. We were yeah. so freaking yeah. tired. And so we'd seen Pete and we had chatted with him a little bit. And he says, yeah, well, April's showing up here in a little bit. We're like... Wait, what? Just, <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> you can't escape me, Jeff Mishler. <laughs> it's not a bad thing. <laughs> so you guys were on the Muskegon, and it, it, yeah. for this one, you teamed up with my dear friend, the lovely Tom Larimer. Yeah, Tom and his buddy, Dave Pinchkowski. Oh, yeah. Was, <laughs> That's right, because Dave came. We had a casting, co- a drunken casting yeah. competition. Me, Dave, Pete, and 
Big Jerry. Yeah, oh yeah. That's so funny. Yeah, yeah so yeah, Dave's a really good friend with Tom Larimer, and and <laughs> you know you can't go to the Midwest and not have uh, Pinchkowski involved. It's just. You know, he's, they call him the soul roller, but he is... He's so low-key. Oh, my God. Wearing and, his Ugg boots. Yeah, <laughs> rocking the Uggs, man. And, you know, he's, he loves the Almond Brothers. He loves the Uggs. He, uh, oh, I, I can't, I can just go on and on about the guy. He, and he is a wicked caster and he's a wicked angler. I mean, he is really good. But you'd never know it. I mean, he's just so mellow about everything. And and so when we got together with Tom and and, and Dave... On the Muskegon, our goal there was to present casting concepts from a boat that you can cast two handers from a boat with these these intermediate heads. Genius! Oh my gosh, it's really effective. And the way Dave had his boat rigged was with a battery powered anchor retrieval system, where he had his anchor rope coming up and then going back out, controlled off the toggle on his outboard jet. So instead of having the toggle work the tilt on his boat, he had it rigged up so all he had to do was and he'd raise and lower the anchor with the toggle on his jet motor, on on the tiller handle. So this guy is way into this. And uh, what we realized right away was that two anglers can fish easily out of a boat if you know how to, you know, execute an off-shoulder cast. Because one guy is off the right, one guy's off the left, um, overhand cast, you can cast to Texas. So, you know, with these intermediate lines, it just made the process uh, effortless to get the fly in the zone. Because with a floating line, if you made the cast, these little uh, squiggles in the current and the, the changing complexities would pull your floating line down with too much belly and your fly would mock out of the bucket. But with these intermediate lines from the boat, they would cast 100 feet, set the line up, set it up again, and then, man, the whole system would dig down and keep the fly right in the zone. So... The challenge for us was that the fishing wasn't that great. I don't know what you experienced, but we had a hard time catching fish on the first couple of days on the Muskegon because the water temperature had gone from the 50s or something down into the low 40s in just a couple of nights. And then this giant front came in and it got cold and we really had some tough fishing. But what I realized is that that technique opens up so many rivers to so many anglers. And what I don't see are anglers here in the Pacific Northwest using their smaller jet boats to move around the rivers, to cast in places where you can't cast from the bank, and you get to fish, you could fish rivers that are so big and overwhelming that everyone else just leaves them alone, and you could have this amazing angling opportunity all to yourself just because other fly fishermen say, hey, that's too big, I'm going to go fish a smaller river somewhere. So I, I learned a lot on what the possibilities were when you incorporated these higher uh, concept, I want to call them kind of like high concepts gadget heads. They have their, their integrated lines with intermediate sections with floating sections in the back or you know, every company has their own line. But when you, when you bring that line system into your steelhead fishing routine, it just totally opens things up. And I thought those two guys were funny in trying to figure it out. And at the same time, it, you know, it was nice to see them catch a few fish because there's nothing worse than making a steelhead film and, and nobody catches any fish. So yeah, story of my life. It's, it's hard. You know what <laughs> no. I mean? Whenever the pressure's on and of course time is money every day out there. Right. right. It's... Yeah. You can't just, you, yeah. Well, <laughs> Scott would have liked us to stay in BC for another couple of weeks. I think I'm sure he <laughs> would have. Master too. Yeah. Sure yeah. Cause the fishing was just getting good when we decided that, okay. We got to go. We got to go. Oh, that's too bad. So really, Skagit Master 4 was about going back to the Michigan rivers. Um, we did spend some time in Wisconsin, too, and, and hook up with his old buddies and 
take what we've presented in the first three Skagit Master DVDs and apply them to the rivers there. There is this mindset out there that the only way you'll get a steelhead is with an indicator and an egg pattern. Chuck and duck. Yeah, that's right. So <laughs> uh, these guys have figured it out. And the DVD was, that was kind of the purpose of the DVD was to show that, in fact, you could swing a fly, cast from a boat, and just lay into the steelhead when the situation or the conditions were right. And we did. We found a number of steelhead. It was it was eye-opening for me to see how effective and how efficient you can cover the water when you're casting a two-hander from a boat. Um, you know, Skagit Master 4, for me, is the best of all of them because it brings all the elements from the first three together in the fourth and then applies what you've learned in a new way. It, you know, it talks about fishing from a boat. It talks about intermediate lines. It talks about the latest, greatest technology kind of at the end of the, the you know, at the, at the end of the path of this evolution of, of Skagit lines. We started out with the concept of Skagit casting and the concept of Skagit lines. But until the manufacturers began to make the lines, it was really hard to sell the idea. Yeah. And now they're making, you know, composite intermediate lines with, I don't know, mo tips that are, inter- you know, this it's just anything you want. You it's can come get. a long way yeah. from the Northwest Skagit line. I mean, it's come so far. Yes. So tell me where you go from here then, as far as Skagit Master goes specifically, do you plan on making a fifth? Where else could you go with the idea? Right. So I've toyed with the idea of making um, a fifth Skagit Master. And I, I think from a production standpoint, there is a lot of room out there because there's a huge crossover uh, potential when you have trout fishermen seeing how easy it is to cast 70, 80 feet with a two-handed rod, a small two-handed rod, maybe a two, three, or four weight, casting from locations in the river that you couldn't possibly cast with a single-hander, presenting a daisy chain series of soft tackles, maybe two or three of them on a 12 or 14-foot leader, into runs that haven't been fished for days because no one can cast that far. So for me, from a trout fisherman perspective, I totally get it that, that there's potential and the crossover is there. From a bass fishing perspective, the Skagit lines are perfect for casting poppers. And you just have to match the length of the leader to the task you're trying to accomplish. I mean, if you obviously, if you have a 12-foot leader and you have a popper on the end, it's going to be a little tough. But if you cut that leader down to six or eight feet, bass aren't really leader shy. Make that leader nice and short and make the whole system compact. And you're turning over the biggest bass bug you can imagine yeah. in casting positions where you could never cast a single hander. Mm-hmm. So for me, there's, there's, there's a lot of potential there. The challenge is, uh, once again, a manufacturer's, uh, thing you got, you know, someone has to help pay for the, for the DVD. Mm-hmm. And I've produced four DVDs that I think they still remain the best selling of all the fishing DVDs, but it's hard to keep the energy and the enthusiasm fresh and, and focused. Um, there's always someone with a new idea coming up. And if I'm a manufacturer, I want to stay ahead of the curve. I want to keep moving forward. So the challenges I face are generating enough money to cover the hard costs. Because I don't make these shows out of pocket. I have to have the hard costs covered um, or else it doesn't make financial sense. So um, that's that's kind of where I am on it. I'm, I'm, I, I would like to do a number five. The pieces have not fallen into place yet. And I've been presented with some other opportunities that are kind of taking me a little bit away from Skagit Master 5. I, I'm not saying it's not going to happen. It's just... It's a work in progress, and the process is getting tougher and tougher, you know, as you, as you well know. Talk to me about your book. <laughs> uh, bent. <laughs> yeah. Do you know who Ihor Boyanowski is? Oh, yeah. Okay. He is such a ladies' man. Oh, yeah. So I've known Ihor for a very long time. And uh, when I noted the release of my book, the first, uh, the first thing he sent back to me was the formal 
British description of the word bent, the definition, and it had to do with Uh-oh. someone's uh, orientation, if you want, or or a certain behavior. So when I saw that, let's I, go get bent. Let's get bent, or <laughs> he's such a bent, you know, and, you know. And so I had to, uh, I had to, you know, after I published the book, really consider whether or not I'd done something that was a good idea. But so far, it's it's been good. People who love to fish, people who are passionate about a pastime, connect. Uh, with the images, but they connect with some of the stories that I've that I've concocted. And basically, the book is it has photographs and essays, and the essays are kind of semi-fictional. Some I don't know; they're pretty close to the bone, but it, that some of them are embellished, I would say. But each one of the essays kind of reflect a perspective or my perspective on the world. Uh, as seen through the lens of a really passionate fisherman. So what's I think is interesting, if there's a takeaway from this, is that it's really hard to connect to the culture of fishing unless you're so deep in the culture of fishing. And I think that is what inspires or is an aspiration for a lot of people who fish. They want to feel connected to something bigger than just casting the fly. And so when I started putting the pictures together and the stories together, my I, I began to see that the the piece was actually a window into the culture because every story that I have written and published in the book that focuses on steelhead fishing is really based in a reality of hanging out with some pretty crittery, you, you know, steelheaders. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, Crittery, yeah, I love it. I mean, you know, it, I, I would say that more than once someone would say, so what rock did you climb out from under? <laughs> <You know? laughs> You spend a week on the coast and you start looking like that moss that grows everywhere. You yeah. just you kind <laughs> okay. of feel fuzzy. Well, those are the people I still had fished with for a decade or so. And um, a lot of the ideas were inspired from hanging out with those people. So if I could say anything about the book is that if you're passionate about steelhead fishing, or if you're passionate about any activity, you know there's a culture that's associated with that activity. And and Bent gives you just a little bit of a window into that culture so that you can feel a little bit connected to the thing that you love to do without really having to be too connected to you know, forest gnomes and guys who just need a shave and need to brush their teeth. Anyway, so... That sounds so. like all my fishing buddies. Yeah, yeah, and everybody yeah. I know too. So. <laughs> and what I was hoping to accomplish with the book was something that I took away from a passage that I read from Nick Lyons many years ago. And, and it had to do with a kid riding on a train or a subway in a dense metropolitan area with a passion for fishing, but absolutely feeling like it was hopeless that he would ever have a passageway or find that conduit to that culture. So I think the curiosity is there. I think there's a lot of uh, really enthusiastic young anglers that don't feel like they have access to the culture, which is a pathway for them to learn, right? So as our, our, our population is increasing and the metropolitan areas are becoming more and more crowded, I think it's more and more important to provide an opportunity for younger anglers to kind of look into that window, you know, look at what we do through a lens that is a lens of hope or access rather than one that's created kind of a stigma and made it seem inaccessible. Without that access, all of this just goes away, right? Yeah. And we need to create access. And so the point of my book is to, you know, create a little inspiration, uh, give a little glimpse into the culture of this, this life that I've been living for a long time, and then make it seem accessible to someone who's just trying to figure it out. 
Is there anything else you'd like to add or ask me? No, just thank you so much for the opportunity because uh, in the short time that, you know, we had interacted, I, I, you know, I got a sense of who you were and what you were trying to accomplish. And I'm all in on what you're trying to accomplish because without, without keeping this cultural ball rolling by documenting this oral history, it all dies. And with technology, it may appear as though it's easier, but you still have to do the work. You still have to do the work to make the, to, 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 to get the recordings because, you know, that's the hard part. This is our way of sitting around the campfire yeah. like they used to do, right? Yeah. Instead of around my drum set and my flight. Time. <laughs> well, I really, really enjoyed myself. Thanks, Jeff. Oh, thank you. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Be sure to tune in next time as I sit down with Carter Andrews. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>